Tonight we return to our study of Paul's teaching concerning putting on the full armor of God in Ephesians chapter 6. And we've seen, and we must never forget, we've got this evil spiritual enemy in this life. And he's engaged in a relentless spiritual war against every one of us. He wants to see us all in hell with him forever. So we must put on this armor that God has provided us if we're going to be successful in battling this demonic being. 2 Corinthians 10.3, though we walk in the flesh, we don't war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but are divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. So the devil has been defeated by Christ at the cross. That's happened. His destiny is certain. But Peter tells us, 1 Peter 5.8, Our adversary, the devil, still prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Seeks to destroy the work of Christ in us. He seeks our destruction. And that's the same thing Paul is telling us here. Satan's a deceiver. He uses cunning. He comes at us when we're not looking. Uses deceptive strategies. Disguises himself as something good, as a angel of light. So, Paul's message, we must equip ourselves for this spiritual warfare because we're in it. It isn't something we can choose whether or not to engage in. We are in it. Therefore, verse 13, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist, to stand your ground in the evil day, having done everything to stand firm. That's the message, stand firm. And because of those words, stand firm, which occur three times here in these few short verses, Many see all of this armor as defensive armor provided to us so that we can withstand Satan's attacks. Others see an offensive side to this. And certainly there's an offensive application in this armor that we have been looking at, both as to the girding of our loins with truth and as to the putting on the breastplate of righteousness only spiritual armors of any use in this battle. Our reason, our intellect, our brilliance are of no value against Satan. So God's provided us with the necessary armor, and we've been looking at it, but we have to take it up and we have to put it on. And if we do, we're going to be able to stand firm against Satan. So we've begun to look at these first two items of the armor that God's provided us. First, Paul writes, we must gird our loins with Truth, this piece of armor, truth is foundational to all of the others. We must take it up, we must put it on if we are to withstand Satan's attacks. Believers are strengthened against Satan by the truth, by knowing the truth. All that God has spoken in his word is truth. The gospel is truth. We must take up this truth, take it into our hearts and minds so that it becomes part of us. His truth has a transforming power in us. And it helps us to lay aside the old self and to put on the new self. Remember, the new self has been created in the image of God, in holiness and righteousness of the truth. And when we take the truth into our hearts, 
It'll help us to stand firm against the wiles of the devil. If we don't have the truth, if we don't live trusting in the truth, we're going to be defenseless against the devil. So that's the first message. Second, we must take up and put on the breastplate of righteousness. And we looked at this last week. No man has any righteousness of his own. We're not righteous. None of us is righteous according to our own measure of obedience to the law of God. And we can't earn a declaration by God that we are righteous. We can't earn a a right standing before God. No sinful man can do it. It can only be received as a gift of God. And Christ saved us. He earned our justification. He earned this declaration of our right standing before God. He won for us a not guilty verdict, despite our sin. His righteousness is credited to the born-again believer through the gift of faith. And that's the gospel. So we must take up and put on the righteousness of Christ, which has been credited to us. Genesis fifteen six. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. You know, that verse, Genesis 15, 6, is quoted by Paul at least twice. Romans chapter 4, verse 3. Galatians chapter 3, verse 6. The righteousness of Christ is credited to us through the gift of faith. But, as we saw, we are also encouraged in Scripture to pursue righteous qualities in ourselves. Paul encouraged Timothy. 1 Timothy 6.11, Paul wrote to Timothy, But flee from all things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, pursue godliness, pursue faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Peter wrote, 1 Peter 2.24, He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. So we're not called only to receive and enjoy the benefit of this not guilty verdict that Christ has won us, this declaration of righteousness. We are to live to righteousness, to pursue righteousness. So the born-again believer is one who's been cleansed of his sin, has been declared just before God, declared righteous before him. Christ's perfect obedience in his humanity has been credited to the born-again believer through the instrument of faith, which is itself a gift of God. And so, Paul tells us, we're no longer slaves of sin, as we all were. We have become slaves of righteousness. So now, we must present our bodies to God in this life as slaves of righteousness. And we need God's declaration of our righteousness as a piece of armor against Satan. So we've got this righteousness kind of working in two ways here. The application is, of course, our living to righteousness. But we need God's declaration that we are righteous as a piece of armor now against Satan. Because Satan is what? We saw this last week. He is the accuser of the brethren. He accuses us before God. And before we were declared righteous, justified, His accusation would win our conviction. Now it cannot. He can no longer rightly accuse us of unrighteousness. And we need to know that. We need to take this declaration of righteousness and 
the assurance that, that comes with it and use it to stand against Satan when he accuses us, when he tries to get us to doubt whether God is really going to be willing to receive us into his presence. We have this, and so Satan cannot accuse us any longer. This declaration of righteousness, we should always know this, and never doubt, because this is a perfect defense against the accusation of Satan that we are guilty before God. Second, this righteousness that we've received, this declaration, is now at work within us. So we must now pursue righteousness in our lives and, and live to righteousness. Again, not that we would, could merit salvation by it, but as the, the right response to the grace of God. Now, to the necessity of first having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness in order that we may stand firm against the devil, Paul now adds a third item of armor. And we find it here in verse 15. And having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. The third piece of armor is the gospel of peace. And it's pictured here as a piece of footwear. As something that will assist in preparing us, making us ready for the battles that are going to come. We have three questions that are raised by this little verse. First, why does Paul speak of the good news of peace? And remember, the word that we translate gospel actually means euangelion, good news. The good news of peace is what he's talking about here. Why does Paul speak of the good news of peace using a metaphor of footwear? That's number one. Second, what does Paul mean by the gospel of peace, the good news of peace here? What's he talking about? Why, why not just say the good news? He says the good news of peace. Why? Third, how does shodding our feet with this good news of peace prepare us for warfare with Satan? How does it help us to stand firm against Satan? So those are the three questions we have to try and answer here. First, we deal with Paul's use of the symbol of footwear here. Anybody have any thoughts why he's using that particular symbol here? Well, I think that is going to be part of the application. We've talked about how we take in the truth and then we want to spread the truth as the application of that. We, we want to receive the righteousness of God and we, then we want that to work in us as the application of that. And I think that's going to, we're going to see, that's going to be the case again here with this gospel of peace. We're going to need proper footwear to take the gospel into the world. Proper footwear helps you to stand firm. Now, he's, he, he uses it in the context of preparing, as preparation for battle. Now, he didn't do that in the case of the breastplate of righteousness, which is also in its own sense, preparation for battle. Well, Paul's using of this symbol of footwear here, like the waist belt and the breastplate, first of all, has an allusion to the battle armor of the Romans and the Greeks of that time, and also to Old Testament language. We see this kind of language here. 
The warriors in antiquity required, as we can well imagine, proper footwear in order to go into battle, fully prepared. If they didn't have proper footwear in those days, and it's true today as well, they certainly would not go into battle prepared. It was all infantry in antiquity. Similarly, the Christian must be prepared for warfare against the world forces of darkness. So the Roman soldier would wear something that was called a caliga. It was a half boot. It wasn't strictly a weapon. We're not talking about a weapon here, but it was an important part of his equipment, especially when he was on long marches, as, as Jim just indicated. Josephus recorded this in Jewish Wars uh, 6, 1, and 8. In order to help them move over many kinds of roads and landscapes, Roman soldiers would put on shoes thickly studded with sharp nails. Reminds us of the tires we used to be able to get that had the chains on them. It's said that one reason for the success of Julius Caesar as a general was that his men wore military shoes that made it possible for them to cover long distances in less time than their enemies anticipated. And what would that mean if they could move quicker than the enemy thought they could? The enemy would not have time to prepare. It would not be fully prepared when they came to attack. And they wouldn't have an adequate defense against Julius Caesar's troops. In victories uh, won by Alexander the Great, we read that the same factor played a key role. All that to say, Paul seems to be making the point that as proper footwear enhances readiness for war, so too must the Christian make every preparation for the spiritual warfare he is certain to encounter. And exactly why he chose footwear isn't certain. And, you know, he could have made this statement about several of these pieces of armor. But here in verse 15, we see another part of this. Here, Paul adapted the wording of Isaiah again. He again adapts the wording of Isaiah to fit. He he then fits it to the syntactical pattern. He says, having girded your loins, having put on. Now he says, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. So Paul's drawing on another verse in Isaiah here, as he did in the case of the breastplate of righteousness. Isaiah 52, 7, How lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace and brings good news of happiness, who announces salvation and says to Zion, Your God reigns. Well, Paul cited to the same verse, not only here, but also in Romans chapter 10, verse 15. Paul had favorite verses in, from the Old Testament. Romans 10, 15, how will they preach unless they're sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. Once again, and not the first time in this whole little passage, Paul draws on both a picture of the uniform of the Roman soldier, but also draws directly from the Old Testament. So Paul uses the necessity of proper footwear as a metaphor 
in exhorting his readers to making all the necessary preparations to make us ready for Satan's attacks. But now we come to the question, what does Paul mean by the term, the good news of peace? If he's just talking about the gospel, why not just say the good news? Well, this is translated by many, the gospel of peace. I, I'm not convinced that the good news of peace is not a better rendering. But is Paul speaking of the gospel message itself? That Christ died for our sins and rose for our justification? Or is he speaking of what Christ accomplished for us? Peace with one another, Jew and Gentile, and more importantly, peace with God. So the gospel tells the way of salvation, but the gospel of peace, the good news of peace, speaks of the peace with God that Christ won for us. Well, there's ample support for the idea that Paul is speaking of the latter, that he's talking of what Christ accomplished for us. Peace between Jewish and Gentile believers, and then reconciling them both in one body to the Father. Now, if you look at chapter 2, verse 11, this is where Paul sets out the bringing together of Jew and Gentile into one body in Christ, and then he reconciling them in one body to the Father. Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands. Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And then look at verse 14. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body, to God, through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity. So, is this the peace that Paul is speaking of when he talks of the good news of peace? Well, I, I believe it is. And this is a difficult passage. I mean, we've seen there are varying views of every single verse and, and, and clause in, in this section dealing with spiritual warfare and the armor of God. But here, you notice in chapter 2, verse 11 and following, Paul speaks of peace both in a horizontal sense, in other words, peace between Jew and Gentile believers, but he also speaks of peace in a vertical sense, as Christ has reconciled both groups in one body to God. And this, I believe, is likely Paul's meaning when he speaks of the good news of peace, the gospel of peace. Romans 5.1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Now, why is this significant? Because all men come into this world separated from God, children of his wrath, and without hope in the world apart from his grace. But Paul writes, Ephesians 2.17, that Christ came and preached peace to you who were far off, Gentiles, and peace to those who were near, the Jews. For through him, we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. Where does this come from? Where do you suppose in the Old Testament we might find a verse like this? To Isaiah's. Very good. Isaiah 57, 19. Creating the praise of the lips. Peace. Peace to him who is far and to him who is near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. So the good news has both dimensions. And Paul teaches of peace in both the horizontal and vertical dimensions. And not only in Ephesians, but in others of his letters. We conclude then that by the term good news of peace, Paul is alluding to that peace that Christ accomplished and established between Jew and Gentile believers, and they're being reconciled to God in one body. But that leaves us with another question. Is the Christian's knowledge that he has peace with God solely a piece of defensive armor enabling him to stand firm against Satan? Or is there an application to this by which Paul is saying to us that our assurance of our peace with God is necessary preparation to our taking the gospel into the world? as offensive weaponry. Well, Bible scholars are divided, as they've been on every single question we've had throughout this passage. Some would say Paul is saying that our assurance that we have peace with God provides us with the necessary strength and ability to stand firm against the wiles of the devil, to stand firm against the powers of darkness, to resist temptation, to resist his attempts to get us to doubt, to resist temptation to sin and unbelief, a defensive posture. We have this assurance of our peace with God and we are able to hold fast to what Christ has already won for us. And it seems clear that that's at least a part of what Paul's saying to us here. The assurance that you have peace with God should give you great strength against Satan. Don't ever doubt. Don't ever doubt. Reconciliation with God. This is a matter of monumental significance. To come into this world a child of wrath and to now be reconciled to God? To be joined into an eternal union with the risen and ascended Christ? To have our eternal destiny changed and assured All of this should certainly have a transforming effect in our lives and in our attitudes, in the way we think. Knowing that we now have peace with God provides us with an absolute assurance of what is true. People searching the world for the truth. And finally, in this postmodern, post-postmodern age, people decide there is no truth. 
There's no absolute truth. There's just what you want to believe. But it's the truth that is the foundation of our assurance. And knowing the truth that we have peace with God provides us with an absolute assurance of what is true. It helps us to resist the influences of the devil and to withstand temptation. And some believe this is Paul's entire meaning here. That he's saying the good news that we have peace with God is solely a defensive piece of armor. But others say, and I believe this position is correct, others say that having shod our feet with this good news of peace with God, we are also now equipped to carry the attack against Satan into enemy territory. He's the ruler of this world. And we, by having the assurance that we have peace with God, are equipped to proclaim this good news to others. The good news of peace with God through faith in Christ is also an effective offensive weapon to be taken into Satan's kingdom. And I believe that's the application at a minimum of this verse. I'm going to read uh, 2 Corinthians 10.4 one more time. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for what? For the destruction of fortresses or strongholds. That's offensive warfare. 2 Corinthians 10.4 carries an offensive tone. And Paul speaks there of the weapons he uses in his warfare, not as human weapons, but as divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses or strongholds, for destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And I believe that Paul is making the same point here in Ephesians 6.15. And the context that we read earlier of Isaiah 52 verse 7 favors this interpretation. How lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. Well, this isn't just standing firm and resisting. This is going forward. Who announces peace and brings good news of happiness. Who announces salvation and says to Zion, your God reigns. Now, if we think back to chapter 2 of Ephesians in verse 17, we see Christ spoken of as this messenger of Isaiah 52, 7. In chapter 2, verses 14, 15, and 16, we see Christ as the one who accomplished that peace. He's a messenger of this peace, and then he is the one who accomplished peace for us with God. He came, remember, and what was his very first message when he came into Galilee? Repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. He was a proclaimer of the kingdom of God. And then what did he do after three years? He went to the cross and accomplished peace with God and opened the gates of heaven for us. He proclaimed the message, he announced the message, and then he accomplished peace with God. Ultimately, if Paul is alluding to the good news of peace with God here, not only as a defensive 
armor, which equips us to stand firm against the devil, but also as an offensive weapon, then he is telling us to get ourselves ready, to prepare ourselves, to be prepared to take the good news of eternal life through faith in Christ into the world, to take the gospel to others. Prepare yourself to do it. And in that sense, Paul is exhorting every believer to prepare ourselves for that mission, to take up what was the mission of Christ and then was the mission of the apostles and was the mission of Augustine and was the mission of the reformers to preach the way of peace to all men. Now our mission. This is the clear command of the New Testament that we, Christ's church, take the gospel into the world. That's why he's left us here. That we might be discipled and that we might be witnesses of his goodness and of his grace. So what we see is that those who've been blessed with the gift of peace with God have been provided with the necessary armor to stand firm against the devil and with the necessary weaponry to proclaim the gospel of peace in the world. We've looked now at the first three pieces of this armor. And what do we see that's central to all three pieces? But the gospel. Without the gospel, what is there here? God's saving truth is contained in the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation to all who believe, Jew and Gentile. The righteousness of Christ is imputed to a sinner through hearing and believing the gospel. And it is by and through the gospel that Christ's work on the cross by which he reconciled us to God is communicated and imparted to us. It's through the gospel that we receive peace with God. And our peace with God, Paul tells us tonight, prepares us for this battle of Satan. Not only to stand firm, but to go against him with the good news. And if Christ had not made peace with God for us, our situation would be hopeless. William Hendrickson wrote, a person who experiences within his own heart the peace of God that passes all understanding, the very peace which the gospel proclaims, has been delivered of a great burden. The conviction of being reconciled with God through the blood of Christ gives him the courage and the zeal to fight the good fight. If the gospel received in and by faith has not given him this peace, how could he be prepared to engage in this battle? And so, not only Paul and Peter, but Jesus himself says to us, Luke 12, 35, be dressed in readiness and keep your lamps lit. Let's take a moment, reflect on what the Lord has taught us tonight, and then we will close in prayer. Lord, what a blessing to know we have been reconciled to you, to know that we have peace with you through the blood of your Son. Lord, we know we did nothing to earn this. And Lord, we know that we have a mission here now that you have imputed Christ's righteousness to us, that you've opened our hearts and minds to the knowledge of truth, and that you've 
given us everything necessary to prepare ourselves for this battle with the forces of darkness. So, Lord, we ask for daily conviction that we would not only stand firm, but that we would be useful witnesses and proclaimers of your goodness, your glory, and your grace. In Christ's name, amen.